ever wondered what you should do if your professor thinks you should write literary fiction, but you know you're going to write something else? Today's guest, Anna Mariano, talks about how much she appreciated that prof, and also why choosing to disregard his suggestion was the best decision she could have made. Also, we investigate the weird and fascinating triple Venn diagram of the arts, people who speak Spanish, and firefighters in Houston. Don't miss it. Wow. Thank you, Boo, for being creepy. so... <laughs> for being so... Stocky. So creepy. Stocky. Creepy. So stocky. <laughs> that that yoga mat uncurls the tongue in a way yes. that yes. y'all yes. is yes. eliminated. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Panic attack ramen noodles. Yes. I was thinking, I was thinking crying thin mints. Yep. Crying thin mints? Yeah. Oh, that's a good horse name. Did the professional podcast voice go on? <laughs> on today's podcast, today's we search for a lost dog and we talk about frosted mini wheats and crying into a ramen <laughs> i'm jessica cole i'm fulu i'm kate martin williams and this is effing shakespeare by writers for writers Sitting down to read a little Anna Mariano is like having a nice big bowl of the cereal you loved as a kid. For me, frosted mini-wheats. And following that up with a big mug of hot cocoa. Loads of fun and a little bit indulgent. It returns you to the joy, immediacy, and ultimately the sheer wonder that is childhood. As I was reading and thinking about the show today, I wondered what I would want for our listeners, who are mostly writers, to know from Anna. We have so much to learn from all writers, writers of genre fiction, writers of flash, essays, poetry, and of course, from today's guest, Anna, who writes children's literature. What's so, so lovely about her series, Love, Sugar, Magic, is that it's a constant reminder there's a possibility for literally anything to happen as you turn the page. And there's such freedom in that as a writer. Anna serves as plot twists as delicious as cinnamon twists, Lyrical turns of phrase that nearly float off the page as easy and beautiful as a flaky pastry, and thoughtfully constructed characters who you feel by the end of reading you've almost memorized and to whom your mind returns happily like a well-loved family recipe. And don't we all want these same things from our own writing? We can't wait to hear what you have in store for us today. Welcome to the show, Anna. Thank you. Yeah. That was so nice. Welcome. We have really enjoyed dipping into your books at our house. My eight-year-old absolutely loves them. Yay. She incidentally also loves Matilda, as do I. Nice, me too. I can't remember where I read that. Have you Have you seen the musical? Oh, I haven't seen the musical, which is wild because I love musicals and I love Matilda, and I haven't seen the Matilda oh musical. Well, then my eight-year-old shares that in common with you, and she still <laughs> hasn't forgiven me that I took the 11-year-old. But in oh, my I defense, know. like we only had two tickets. I couldn't send both the girls without me Mm -hmm. so I had to choose and Mina at that age I think it was here maybe two or three years ago and she couldn't even listen to the soundtrack when we got to this one scary song Mm -hmm. so I wasn't gonna I I couldn't send her into the theater my my seven-year-old is too scared of it still which is really funny I'm like she's a kid witch she's like (laughs) you So, yeah, so I'm anxious to get to know some of the insider scoop about the books and be able to share it with her. One of the things I loved about the first in the series, so their books are called Love, Sugar, Magic, and the first is A Dash of Trouble, and the second in the series is called A Sprinkle of Spirits, and they feature this wonderful protagonist named Leo, and she turns out to be a bruja which is a a a witch and so and she comes from a long line of witches in her Mm -hmm. family I don't think it's giving up too much but she at the end of the first book has to figure out her own spell to sort of correct this spell that went all this trouble she's caused yeah and in it she has to figure out what the opposite of honey is or the opposite Mm -hmm. of spider webs and I was so taken with this concept because it's such a great introduction to kind of how we write poetry and what language can do. And I just, I so loved it. And I love that you make young people able to understand these concepts in your book. And just wanted to know more about that. Where did the idea come for that? 
so I, I love that you say that that's, you know, a very poetic thing, because I usually don't think of myself as super poetic. I come much more from the, like, fiction side of things, and I always get a little intimidated by poetry. But I think this project, working on Love, Sugar, Magic, this whole series has opened up poetry more for me because partially it is like the magic and also because baking is such a strong undercurrent that it just made sense and I think I had in an early draft someone say Leo has all these emotions but right now we're not feeling them very strongly can you try and I think they gave as an example can you try using a a simile or a metaphor like lightning went down the back of her neck and uh-huh, I was like yeah that's uh-huh. fine she's Leo and well, I, I bet I can come up with something more specific to yeah, her. Yeah, so I yeah. kind of fell into this habit of using these baking metaphors. You know, like her mind was like an overstuffed empanada or her yeah. her thoughts were whirring <laughs> like an electric mister. I keep hitting that. That's okay. <laughs> and then hilariously, it's one of the things people, writers who read the book, will comment on and ask me about. And it's so funny because it's never something that has been a talent of mine before. Isn't that? Yeah, that's so great. Oh, I so think growth. That our, but your character demands it. That's yeah. <laughs> but with the because right, she's she, right because she's she's too special and idiosyncratic to talk about this pimples, right? Yeah. And so with the with the reversal spell, I was kind of in that same boat when I started because I was I think I'm going to talk about this more later, but I was working with Cake Literary for this project, which meant basically that I had a lot of plot points of what was going to happen and I had very little road between the plot points Uh um, including like magic system I didn't I wasn't given that so it was all up on on me to invent the magic system so I I don't know what that means what do you mean magic system oh well so whenever you (laughs) whenever you want to write fantasy if you decide that there is magic your magic needs to have internal consistency okay so and it's it, a like, set of logic that yeah that works for you and there's world. there's definitely like different schools of thought like some people do very wishy-washy like it's magic and therefore there are almost no rules <laughs> but i think if you have absolutely no rules you're going to either get like totally absurdist or it's just not going to be a very good payoff because your characters will just be able to solve any problem without any, you know, cost. Mm-hmm. So most people do err on the side of like giving more logic and more internal consistency and that sort of thing. Fantasy writers everywhere right now are rolling <laughs> their eyes at me for not understanding or knowing these things already. No, so I mean, I think we all need to like. I want you to write an essay called The Magic System. Yes. Because <laughs> that's yes. just so good. Oh, man. But I mean, like, I feel like there's already so many great people writing about it. And I'm, of course, completely blanking on who any of them are now. Well, yeah, it's okay. JK, she has one. She has a very elaborate, very logical. Yeah, Kristen Kasher has a great essay about her fantasy novels, which are YA fantasy novels, but the protagonist is like an adult, already founded a rebellion, and is caring for a child and thinking about marriage. So I don't really know what's YA about (laughs) them. Not in a bad way. Like, I think they're amazing. They're some of my favorite books. But I feel like if her name had been Kyle Cashore, it would have been an adult novel. Yeah, because Um, tell us again what the the (laughs) rule is for delineating between YA fantasy and regular fantasy. Yeah, so with a lot of the YA fantasy, the only difference is uh, between YA and adult fantasy that seems to be coming out, or the main difference is that women can write YA fantasy, (laughs) which... I feel like I'm discounting a lot of women who are writing adult fantasy. They exist, and they're amazing, and go read Rebecca Roanhorse. The point is, well... The point is, we have a lot of YA fantasy that is actually pretty adult. But, you know, adults are reading YA, so it's okay. Is that the same with science fiction also? I think so. I think right now there's less YA sci-fi. Not, certainly not none, but a little bit less. But I think it's likely that you'd run into the same problems. I'm trying I'm trying to think mm-hmm. of books that I'm, I've actually seen that are sci-fi written by women, but I'm blanking right now. Although my, I haven't been reading a lot of sci-fi yeah, recently. And, and, yeah, me too since high school, but the major sci-fi writers that come to mind are all men. And I think yeah. sci-fi and fantasy blend so much. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think mm-hmm. that's also like a... Because, you know, do you call... I was going to say the fifth season, but I'm not far enough into that book to know for sure. What about Anne McCaffrey? Anne McCaffrey, I feel like, is maybe on the line, right? Yeah, yeah. Dragon the song. Mm-hmm, yeah. Because it's like, well, it's dragons, so therefore it's fantasy, but it's space dragons. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's a better example. Um, I was going to say N.K. Jemisin because 
she's just so factual about the way she builds her universes that I feel like there is a little bit of science fiction to it. Um, but I haven't really quite finished that book, so I don't have the authority to speak on it. Well, next week we're going to have Tilly Walden on the show, who's a graphic novelist, but oh, she cool. does, I mean, there's she has space fish that are spaceships. And, nice. And is like so good at world building. I'm sure she'll have stuff to say about oh, the, the line between. Eight. By Laura Pohl. Sorry. Another one. Of a sci-fi. No, no, yeah. no, that's good. The Last Eight by Laura Pohl is YA sci-fi. I don't know. I think it's pretty YA, though, like with teens. Yeah. Sorry. You Kristen Castro has a great essay. Let's ch- Yeah, we'll check it out. We'll link it. Mm-hmm. I think it's then. called Hot Dog Katza because she was saying, like, I create this world. It's all up to me, but I have rules. Like, I, my characters can't say hot dog because... That wouldn't make sense internally because where would they have gotten the expression hot dog? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, so it's less about magic system and more about diction, but uh-huh. it kind of speaks to the same idea. No, I love how it, how it circles back to language and like that circles back to what you were saying as well about creating similes that yeah. both adhere to your magic system and fit with your character and, and move her forward and, yeah. and flesh her out or, and make her seem more Leo. And when I was inventing that, that reversal spell... I kind of ran into that problem of like, okay, we want to reverse something. How do we reverse? And my my thought was opposites. And I was like, well, that's going to be difficult because how do you get the opposite of these? Yeah. So it, like Leo asked the question almost because I asked, had to ask the question to myself <laughs> to get there. And I think I did even in the book say it's more about you as the bruja believing that it's opposite or like feeling that it's right more than saying that there's a specific answer i think that's true of similes and metaphors and language use in general right right it's not always about like in fact it's never about arguably finding the exact word that someone else would use to describe the situation it's about or the right answer yeah yeah or even that equal sign it's not really an equal sign it's always the wavy equal sign Mm -hmm. yeah yeah (laughs) what a great metaphor (laughs) Do you mind reading an excerpt for us? Oh, yeah, definitely. No, I do not. I mean, I always <laughs> yes, do that. I This part that I'm going to read is from pretty early on in the book, but Leo has already discovered that her sisters have been doing some magic without her. She found that out by spying on them, like you do. <laughs> and she's cornered her oldest sister and asked, sort of blackmailed her actually into, not really, into saying, please show me some magic. And her oldest sister, Isabel, who's kind of the responsible one, says, okay, fine, I'll show you one little thing. It's a very, very easy spell. And she takes a little bit of flour, she blows on it, and it turns into snowflakes. And Leo immediately wants to try it herself. She grabs her own pinch of flour, she blows on her hand, and the flour just kind of puffs up into her face and all over the floor and makes a big mess, and the spell doesn't work at all. Um, So this is kind of, that's where we're, we're starting this. Don't worry, Isabel said softly. I told you, no one gets a spell right on their first try, especially before they turn 15. She cupped her hand over Leo's, hiding the flower. Just forget about the magic for now, and you can try again in a few years. At least now you know, right? Leo shrugged. She didn't want to wait until she was 15. If Alma and Belen, her other sisters, could be initiated early, then she could be too. She would just have to prove to Mama how talented she could be and how much help she could be. Can I see you do it? Leo asked. Just one more time. Isabel smiled, waved towards the dusting of flour on the ground, and held out her cupped hands to catch the resulting storm of snowflakes. They danced upward through the air like someone had hit rewind on winter. When it was finished, the floor was clean and Isabel held a bit of flour which she carefully brushed into the trash can under the desk. You did it different! How could Leo learn if her sister was going to change the rules from moment to moment? You didn't even blow on it! I told you. This spell isn't about having a strict recipe, Isabel laughed. It's about the feeling. Don't worry, you'll understand someday. Leo frowned and reached for one more pinch of flour. Someday didn't interest her. She had tried thinking about magic, scrunching her forehead and puffing her chest as if she had some previously undiscovered magic muscle she could flex. Now instead, she focused on the flower in her palm and thought about snow. Leo had seen snow only once, 
four Christmases ago, when Rose Hill, Texas, had suffered through an unusually cold winter. On Christmas Eve, after Mama had bundled Leo into her warmest red jacket and piled everyone into her minivan for midnight mass, Leo sat in the pew snug between Daddy and Mama and fell asleep to the voices of her family and neighbors singing verses of Silent Night in English, Spanish, and German. She barely stirred when Daddy carried her out into the van or when he tucked her into the seat between Isabel and Marisol. But on the way home, Isabel shook Leo's shoulder, and Alma and Belen and even Marisol oohed and awed, because the freezing night had really frozen, and small white dots sprinkled the windshield. When they pulled into the driveway, everyone got out of their car and stood in the front yard, heads tilted, arms outstretched. Mama called it un milagro, a Christmas miracle. Daddy scooped up the thin layer of snow that was sticking on the roof of his truck and made a snowball that hit Mama when Marisol ducked. <laughs> Alma and Belen crouched to watch the snowflakes melt as they hit the sidewalk. Isabel hummed Christmas carols and smiled and waved at the neighbors who were also outside, some in robes and slippers, some still in church dresses and ties. And Leo stared up at the night sky and watched the flakes dance like lazy shooting stars. It was a sweet memory and a snowy memory, and Leo held on to it as she closed her eyes and blew on the flower in her palm. Her breath felt cold against her skin. She opened her eyes and breathed in the smell of flower dust and the tiniest hint of spicy magic. And spoiler alert, but yes, the spell worked. <laughs> <laughs> My eight-year-old has a, a burning question for you. Can mm -hmm. we play it for you? Oh, yeah, definitely. Hello, Anna Mariano. I like how when you wrote the story, you made Leo sort of different from the rest of my family because she couldn't speak Spanish as much as her family members. And my question for you is, what made you think about the storyline and how you got it into the book? Oh, what a great question. Um, and that kind of opens up for me to talk about a lot of things. So I'm going to answer it in several parts, I think, which is always what I do. So, <laughs> so first off, I when I came up with this idea, that's not the right way to put it, but whatever. So when I started working on this project, I actually had some friends who were helping me on it. And I think I will be talking about that more later on. But I was working with two friends named Danielle and Sona, who run Cake Literary, and they had a lot of ideas about the book already, and they were talking to me about them and also asking me what I thought about them. And one of the questions they had was, we were thinking that Leo maybe would not be able to speak Spanish, they came saying, because that will make it more mysterious, because then she'll have more of a reason to have to spy and to not have the information she needs. So it started out from a plot reason. Mm, yeah. Basically, they wanted to give Leo a challenge or an obstacle to what she really wanted, which was to understand what was going on with her sisters and her family. But as soon as they, they mentioned that, I got very excited and I said, oh my gosh, yes, absolutely yes, because that was my experience growing up, not exactly the same as Leo, but in Texas, being of Mexican-American descent, I, and I, my family history is convoluted because my mom's side of the family, they are Irish and German-American. They, they don't have Latino heritage, Latinx heritage, but they lived in Mexico for several years when my mom was pretty little. And so she and a lot of her sisters spoke Spanish completely fluently as children because they were there going to school, living their lives. And then, you know, came back and didn't necessarily keep total fluency but are still they still kind of have like almost native speaker brain where uh -huh. they can say things things will just pop out of their mouth and they'll be like oh yeah I know that and then I'll be like well what does it mean be, I'm not really sure <laughs> um, which is so annoying if you're someone who's trying to learn a language to have yeah. people who have that native speaker like just intuition so annoying yeah uh, yeah sure and then my dad's side of the family he and his brothers and sisters don't speak Spanish as well. My grandma spoke Spanish with her family, but then kind of made the decision not necessarily to pass that on. I say made that decision. I don't know exactly what was going on, but I suspect it had to do with being in Texas and not wanting people to have certain 
conceptions of her kids as they grew up. Yeah, these things are... And also my grandpa didn't speak Spanish, so, you know, they weren't, wouldn't be speaking it at home. So, for whatever reason. So my dad's side of the family, not as fluent. My mom's side of the family, kind of more fluent. But then everyone has, like, at least a background in it. As a kid, I couldn't tell the difference between different levels of fluency. You know, I knew that my dad could speak Spanish to people at work. I knew that my mom could walk into a restaurant and, like, help people out if they needed translation help. And so I just was like, well, both my parents speak Spanish perfectly. And they just chose out of meanness not to teach it to me, <laughs> which like, and, and it, for years until I was like almost an adult. Uh-huh. And I finally was like, yeah, well, you didn't teach me Spanish. So my mom was like, well, how could we have? We're not actually fluent. And I was like, oh, so now like, it makes sense. Nuance? Language. It was just, I just felt growing up like I was missing out on this thing. And I do want to acknowledge that the thing that, by missing out on something, I was actually, I had a privilege. Like in this country, it is still a privilege to be, to speak English as your first language. You're not going to get certain discrimination that other people are going to get if they have accents or if they can't speak English perfectly or whatever. So, right, I mean, it is right. a privilege, but it still felt like I was missing out. It still felt like I wasn't able to do something that I wanted to be able to do that I felt like I should be able to do. So when somebody said like to me like oh and leo and we think she probably won't speak spanish i was immediately connected to that idea and i said oh absolutely and here's the reason why that makes sense for her her grandmother or i can't remember if they came up with that reason or i did but we were talking (laughs) about it you know her grandmother had raised her older siblings but then passed away and so leo didn't get that being raised and so she won't have the fluency with Spanish and it'll be this kind of extra layer of being left out and I was like yes all of that so I had a lot of emotional connection to that which is why I think it really is so rich and I I feel like it resonates with people across the board whether it's language based or not there's Mm -hmm. just that feeling in childhood that you just tap into so perfectly yeah and I feel like I mean all over the country I'm, I'm learning as I do a little bit of visiting schools and stuff but I feel especially in Texas there's just so many of us yeah. Latinx Latinx or like partially Latinx I don't that's not really how you want to say it but people who are bicultural yeah kids who are growing up and kind of trying to figure out exactly like where they fit and that's part of the reason that uh Caroline became the character that she is is because so Leo's family is completely Mexican-American and she still has that problem with Spanish and I kind of liked throwing in Caroline who's leo's best friend who's leo's best friend and she's her mom's costa rican um, and her dad is american white i don't know exactly i don't think i picked his heritage (laughs) and she actually does speak spanish which i think leo is a little bit like jealous or very jealous of what the heck yeah Yeah. but then caroline especially in book two has her own struggles with her identity and after her mom dies she is feeling a little disconnected even though she has this connection that leo's jealous of that she wishes she spoke spanish better like caroline Uh, part of the reason that caroline even came in in this way was because i wanted to show that and i wanted to show different levels of spanish fluency and i wanted to show latinos who weren't or latina latina who isn't mexican-american right because two of my Mm -hmm. best friends in college were half costa rican and that's like yeah get some representation across the border is there a way the we could send this book to that a-hole at iHeartRadio? <laughs> and be like, hey, man, I'm, like a lot of other things might be a little too difficult for you to understand. <laughs> but what about this nuanced take on language in Houston and why we need the arts? So the backstory. Phil, you want to fill us in on the backstory? <laughs> I have a burning question to ask Anna, but I think we need to set up our listeners. For- <laughs> so our current poet laureate, Leslie Contreras, Swartz was, I guess she was combing her various blogs or feeds about her and came upon a blog by a Donian uh, radio. Personality is probably too per, yeah, generous personality, uh, and <laughs> which, which made the fire? comment. Basically, yeah, it, it was this, it, it somehow linked the Houston Poet Laureate to the firing of firefighters Houston because we have this Proposition B that just passed that gave a 29% salary increase to firefighters and this was brought on by the firefighters and voters passed it without knowing how this would drain the budget which was so and so uh, anyways and there's a long history about it which I shouldn't get into here but now this radio person 
put on his blog that the reason these firefighters were were now being fired is because we have a new poet laureate who's taking a $25,000 stipend. So somehow the $25,000 stipend uh, it somehow has offset the $100 million budget shortfall. But a stipend it, that was already being paid to a yes. former poet laureate. So yes, this exactly. was not a new hire. We're no. like seven years into the poet laureate. Uh, yes. And, and, and the, the thing that irked me the most is that yeah, we haven't even gotten to the he, truly yeah, irritating he part. He started, the title is, Would You Hire a Spanish-Speaking Poet Laureate? Yes, exactly. It's, it's called fucking Shakespeare. I can say fuck. Yeah, yes. yeah, you yes. could say, what? yes, yes, <laughs> exactly. And that's the exact comment that I made. It Wasn't it how much is a Spanish-Speaking Laureate worth? Yes, yes. <gasps> wasn't that the title? Yes, yes. Yeah. And so I made a call into the station and talk to the producer why i i saw this as a flagrant case of racism is because it is yeah because it is <laughs> but, uh, because, because he he went through the trouble of pointing out but also linked to a youtube video where one of her, her poems were read in spanish but translated and read by someone else and he used this YouTube video to make a case for her. He's so woefully uninformed about all pieces of this. Yes. Like he didn't even link to a video of her. Leslie reading her own poetry. It was In someone else. It, and it was, it was <laughs> very evident if a person could read. Okay. And, and this, is, this is why I, I hesitate to even like send him any Anna stuff because the requirement is like a competency, a like bare competency of literacy that I don't think they have over there at the radio station. Okay. The ability to read, you know, just, just a title that this is translated and read by someone else and mm -hmm. not Leslie. Just all around this, this was very irksome to me and it's I had to make that point to them. Yeah. Which ultimately resulted so it, in the could, video getting taken down. And I couldn't find that. Like, I, I found the article that said something along the lines of, like, Poet Laureate is costing firefighters. That was what the, the, the title had changed. Because yeah, yeah. um, I didn't find that that yeah, particular yeah. level of, like, it was... It was Eye-rolling awfulness. <laughs> yeah. yeah. There, it was already bad when I looked it up, um, you know, yesterday, but, like, it wasn't that bad. it was, bad. like, it half was... scrubbed. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, which is yeah. its own version of horrifying, but wow. Well, that's terrible. <laughs> uh, I feel like we need to go give our new poet laureate a hug. We love Leslie. We've had her on the show. Yeah. Um, and she's an advisor on our um, board for the press. So, she, I mean, she's amazing. And to her credit, of course, we expect nothing less because she's amazing, but she, she's handled the whole thing gracefully. And yeah. Her one comment was like, I don't speak Spanish, but I wish I did. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And then she's like, yeah. I am worth $100 yeah. million. Dollars. Yeah. 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 My and, drop. And, and the other thing was that her grandfather was the first Latino firefighter in Houston. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. There's this thing that I strongly believe that everyone should be in a situation where people around them are speaking a language they don't understand. Like, yes, you, yes. that should be. So first of all, you shouldn't be able to walk through Houston without that happening. Otherwise, you're living in a bubble. Right. Um, and secondly, like, it's really good for you. Yeah. Like, it just is. And so my, my book has recipes in Spanish and it has some big passages of people talking in Spanish because Leo can't understand it. And, like, I definitely did have a couple people, including, weirdly, like, I had a discussion with my brother about it. Well, is that a good thing? I mean, aren't you going to alienate a good chunk of your audience? Is that, you know, do you want to do you want to go down that route? Uh -huh. Even to the point of saying, like, isn't it unfair to some of your audience? Uh -huh. And I just think that the answer should be an obvious no. And I think that we're... We're lucky to have media now that lets us be in that uncomfortable space. I mean, to some degree, I, I like watching TV that's set in places that I haven't visited or with people of cultures I haven't seen or uh, mm -hmm. interacted with a whole lot because it's like it does put you in an uncomfortable space where you're like trying to catch up and you're trying to figure out what's going on. And, you know, watching 
Club de Cuervos, which is the like Spanish Netflix show about football clubs. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I'm, there's a lot of jokes I don't get. There's a lot of things I don't understand. Let me text my Mexican friends. What's going? Yeah. What's happening here? Even things like uh, Kim's Convenience, which is shows a little bit of which like we talked Korean... about last show. We oh, did. Cool. Yeah, yeah, Korean uh-huh. culture and Korean language, like very little bit, but it's there. But also, also, when I first started watching it, I was like, why are they paying in Monopoly money? What's happening? Oh, it's Canada. (laughs) (laughs) So that was a very simple thing. But the fact that it was not set in America just floored me. I had never considered Mm -hmm. the fact Mm -hmm. that that show is good for showing lots of multiculturalism. It's just like, it's it's good for you. It stretches you. Mm -hmm. It makes you realize that your perspective and your viewpoint is not the only viewpoint out there. It's just, yeah, I just think that's so important. And I think that, like, in the opposite of, of this is making it more niche or you're doing a disservice to anyone in your audience who can't speak Spanish, I think it's actually helping them maybe as mm-hmm. much or more than it's helping the people who are getting the inside jokes, who are, you know, able to read the whole recipes as much as indifferently. And oh, the there's, word- an amazing, there's an amazing poet, and I'm, of course, blanking on her name right now. But she does a series called Mistranslated. Uh huh. I think it's Elisa Chavez, but I, okay. I'm not sure. Yeah, and she she writes a poem in Spanish. She's not. I think she, I think she's not perfectly fluent in Spanish. She's like you know had to learn it the same way that I did, and it sounds like the same way that Leslie did. Mm-hmm. Although maybe she doesn't speak it at all. But she so she writes a poem in Spanish and she writes it in English and she puts them side by side, and they don't match. Mm-hmm. And the there's. One that's like kind of gone around Tumblr and Twitter more that's about like a mermaid, the mermaid and the fisherman. Uh-huh. And it's very amazing to see how she plays with the like the idea that it's being translated and you can just uh, read one side and it'll, yeah. you'll get the whole story and uh-huh. you really don't. Which like Ken Webster's brain would completely implode. The yes. 15 minutes of work that we've done just talking about the levels of nuance on these two pages <laughs> and the amount of time it took you to like actively consider all the ways that you could have done this is way more than he did, mm-hmm. I don't know, ever. I don't know this guy. But, I mean, hey, but, but don't discount the work of propaganda. Like, you really have to read. You, you know, that was, he was reaching real hard. He might have his muscles. Yeah, yeah, you're going to have to really reach oh and twist and turn. And really know your audience to be that, just yeah. that right level of racist. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's true. That's absolutely true. Uh-huh. <laughs> I love that's how you said that. Just that right level of racist. You just hit um, the right racist note. Just the like, it's it's Ooh. underscore. It's like, it's quietly there. No, it's not quiet at all. Anyway. Right. So maybe he does know how to read. He's just only using his skills in one direction. For evil. <laughs> For evil. <laughs> it is, you know, I always think the like, the closest you can get to magic in real life is language. I mean, you because you can create reality, you can change reality, you can influence people's minds, you can make people fall in love, you can any anything that you want to do with magic, you can pretty much do with the right words, except maybe like levitate things, and (laughs) and you can see you can see the people who are using who are learning to hone that power and use it for their good or for you, yeah, yeah, Yeah. for their own specific gain for to get to yeah. Okay, I want to talk about uh, sensitivity readers. Yes. So you had one. Uh huh. I was like like, impressed that you do that (laughs) because I'm like, did you read the acknowledgments that carefully? That's right. Yeah. You can learn a lot from acknowledgments. Definitely. Um, which is a funny and interesting thing because since that book published, uh, there's been a little bit of a movement to not name sensitivity readers in acknowledgments. You know, I had talked with Taylor about it. But because it, it targets them unnecessarily? Actually, because it uses them as a shield in some ways. So especially mm. if they've given you critiques and you didn't even necessarily take the critiques and then you name them as a sensitivity you're like, reader, you're uh, like, it's Taylor's fault. Basically, yeah. Taylor. It's like, oh, well, I or, or it right. can be bad because Taylor said it was okay. <laughs> like that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, uh-huh. that uh-huh. when I was writing those acknowledgments and I reached out and said, like, is it okay? You know, it was fine. And I think that movement happened later when people found some of the issues with it. But yeah, thank you for reading so carefully. <laughs> no. So I did use a sensitivity reader and I was really happy. I was very lucky with my 
publishing house company. So was it a suggestion from the publishing house or did you seek her out or how, how did that come about? It was, I'm trying to remember now. I'm pretty sure Walden Pond Press or Harper said, hey, we've included, we will pay for like a certain one sensitive, I think one or two sensitivity readers, if you'd like. I think that they made the offer. And I had talked about it already with Cake Literary, and I think it's something we knew we wanted, so it's possible that they put it into the contract. I'm not 100% sure, and that might be why it was there. But either way, when I heard about it, it was my editor saying, like, hey, by the way, do you want to pick a sensitivity reader? Because we're going to get at least one and maybe two of them. So it was important to me. Like, it was awesome because, number one, Mexican-American people are not a monolith. Nobody's a monolith. Like, no culture is a monolith. Right, right, right. So it was so cool to have someone say like, yeah, why don't you grab a grab someone and have them check it out and make sure you didn't overstep or say something that was wrong. It was also just kind of a cool thing to know that this big publishing house was going to essentially say like, hey, pick a friend that you know and we'll pay them. Like, that was cool. (laughs) (laughs) It's like the dream. Right? But... And so then how did you find... So I I ended up uh, asking Taylor to read it because she had been practicing some brujeria she had been kind of like reclaiming those roots for herself and she had been kind of talking about it on twitter and i knew her in other capacities but i had seen her doing that and so i said like hey you know i know you have a little bit of a background in this and i know you've been actively researching it and talking with people about it so would you mind being this like kind of sensitivity reader to make sure that i have basically done the right thing in differentiating what happens in the book from Mm -hmm. the actual Mm -hmm. spiritual practices of a a number of people mm-hmm. <laughs> because you know brujeria right. is a right. real thing and it's a real thing that I don't have a super strong background in I feel like it little pieces of it have been around both sides of my family light the candles and you know the, the virgen candles like the yeah in the glass cases mm-hmm. and but that's I think that's about the end my my grandma has done some you know little blessing things that feel a little bit in that space but they're but they're very catholic blessings and i mean brujeria is so mixed with catholicism it's kind of like easy to yes. overlap but i don't i don't have a strong background in like seeing people actually practice brujeria that's kind of why i brought her in specifically was i was like hey can you look at this and read these specific passages where i say like you know our family specifically the lagronia well not the lagronios because that's a patrilineal but uh yeah i had so much trouble with that <laughs> book three is gonna deal with that uh, but our family specifically this is uh, leo's mother and grandmother talking to her our family does it this way it's not the only way and there's certain things we use that many people use and then there's certain things that are specific to us like the baking and you know just really trying to differentiate between like it's this is a fantasy book and i am creating a magic system right like right right. making those rules and inventing uh just out of off the top of my head or what makes sense to me versus like people who actually are practicing this religion slash spirituality like and it's not i'm not trying to write their experience yeah yeah and so taylor was able to I mean, like, are there instances where she was able to talk to you about some things that could be reworked or... I, I think so. I'm kind of trying to remember. It's been a long time now. <laughs> but I think there was a, a passage that I sent that had been maybe one or two sentences, and she asked me to kind of expand it. And I think it became one of the paragraphs that I really like that Leo's grandmother says to her. Oh, nice. Well, I'd love to hear about the collaborative process of this mm-hmm. thing that we tend to think of as a very lonely process known as writing, yeah. that there's, like... A lot of ways for books to get made and, and there's more so many often people than not, involved. yeah mm-hmm. it happens with more than one person and is made better mm-hmm. by that collaboration absolutely and that's what sensitivity readers because i feel like there's been all this like controversy yeah controversy we, and about it, particularly in readers. ya yeah. and, and but it's really like one or two people who rant or uh, uh <laughs> there's a word i'm thinking of they're like a dog that got that the bone sort of the word <laughs> Yeah, and and decided that, like, sensitivity readers and PC things are ruining YA. They don't even write YA, or, like, they haven't written YA in a while. And it's just a, it's a very strange thing to really get. They probably don't even read YA. Yeah, it's a really strange thing to get all up in arms about, because beta readers have always existed, and they've always told authors what they didn't like or did like about a book. And the only difference is that now, instead of, you know, mostly white people getting paid to do it. Sometimes people of color are specifically being paid to do it. And people are outraged! (laughs) 
outrage. Acknowledging that, you know, people of color might have some expertise. Nuh-uh. Horrifying. Really? How dare you? You ruined the industry. Like, it's <laughs> We talk about that, the Viet Thanh Nguyen quote about, mm-hmm. the thing that will fix this is not um, necessarily a hundred more sen- white sensitivity readers. It's, you know, more people in all levels of publishing yeah. of color yeah, yeah. who are helping to make decisions on what gets written, mm-hmm. how it gets written. and Yeah, and sensitivity readers are, and I think most of the people who have been outspoken in the in the debate, it's not so much of a debate, in the, like, in defending sensitivity readers have said, nobody ever said this was the end-all be-all or the perfect solution. It's just, like, trying to stop all these books from getting published now immediately so that they're not continuing to grow a generation of children with all this gross mm. negative like Turn out yeah to be ken webster basically yeah and i think that's important because a lot of pe- a lot of people focus on the harm that it does to the kids of color who are reading it and that's like sh- definitely shouldn't be discounted because you can find those moments where you read something and it like pierces you specifically but i think almost even more dangerously or or equally dangerously i did this earlier like it's almost more beneficial or at least it's equally <laughs> beneficial is the people who aren't going to feel that like stab of pain and know that it's wrong. They're not right. going to they're not going to read the little right. subtly racist comment and put the book down and say, "Oh my gosh, that hurt me." But they're going to keep reading it. Yeah. And I think that's kind of that's very scary because that's that's how you end up with people who just sort of subtly I just found out that there is going to be a and I might be paraphrasing this incorrectly, of like take on Superman where he's evil. It's like a horror movie. Yes. But, like, yeah. it's like, oh, this alien lands on our planet, and we take him, and he's a refugee, and we take him in, and he destroys it. Like, uh, how is that not a harmful, no. yeah, yeah, that's going to be such, that's, yeah. that's oh, such shit. a harmful message. Yeah. And. That's awful, especially since the regular Superman exactly. is an alien who he's lands an alien on our refugee planet who and comes, is taken in and does good. Yeah, right? he's like, like, yeah. like But, he's but the, the other twist on Superman see anyone address into maybe the most recent movie is that he is a alien who comes on a planet but because he's white mm-hmm. he's given mm-hmm. immunity <laughs> he's like there's no one saying hey you know you're he's illegal exceedingly yeah. handsome yeah Let's you're illegal yeah. you know go back to your right. planet which was destroyed yeah. <laughs> did y'all hear about the um <laughs> right I want to say Irish just because I've heard a lot about Irish uh, undocumented immigrants, but I could be wrong. But somebody was trying to get deported back. They wanted to go back to their home country in Europe. And they, like, turned themselves into ICE. And ICE was like, we're not looking for you. Oh, my God. It's just of course. straight up. Of course. On that positive note. Going down the immigration hall. Sensitivity readers are amazing. Yeah, yeah, yes, yes. Obviously, they should then get hired to being like yeah, actual yeah, editors. Yeah, yes, exactly. Publishing. And I think that's Victor Wing's point. It's not Absolutely. to eliminate sensitivity readers, but you know, that in all levels of publishing, you know, publishing agents, yes. publishing uh, in all levels, mm-hmm. we should be more diverse. Marketing. You know, we, mm-hmm. we talk about this thing called diversity and and openness and but in publishing we are one of the last industries to actually do it you know and it's hard because i i my understanding is the salaries are low yeah no, no. and it's hard and it's hard for it's just no, hard it's to get true. diversity it's, and like there non-profit. are not that there yeah not that there aren't you know people of color who come from economic privilege but there's right. a systematic problem no, that's a really good point yeah and systematic mm-hmm. the systematic problem is that you know people of color are having a harder right. time getting generational wealth so Yeah. yeah. If you can't pay, you're going to have a harder time. You went to Rice. Oh, yes. And actually, my parents, when I was applying for colleges, I wanted to apply to creative writing school in New York. I think it was Pratt um, in New York. And they were like, well, (laughs) you're so young (laughs) and you don't know for sure that this will be your whole career path. Uh So maybe you should keep your options open. 
and just go somewhere where you can get like a normal degree. They were very supportive in very many ways, like all the time throughout my life. But it was kind of funny that in that moment they were like, hedge your bets. Yeah. And, and I think it's, I don't think it's bad advice to hedge your bets. I think they just wanted you to go closer to home. That's absolutely true too. Yeah. So I did, you know, I ended up <laughs> applying to more, more schools in Texas, like liberal arts schools, Winter Ice, which was a really awesome place. And they just made tuition much more affordable so yeah right they are doing good things yeah with oh, their good and even when I, even when i was there they capped student loans at like ten thousand. They, they capped it really low oh that's so, wonderful um, I didn't know that. really mm-hmm. wow they did not do that when i was there oh no <laughs> yeah i want to go back to school now. So therefore they should not do it for anyone else exactly then everyone should have to fucking it, scrape it, it, yeah. They're shit together to pay off their loans because <laughs> I'm a narcissistic asshole. Uh, anyway, think, well, yeah. yeah. Sorry. No, so I went to Rice, and Rice was amazing, and I had a really great experience there. Um, and I got an English major. But it was, they were light on creative writing classes, especially because I'm going to blank on his name. The guy who wrote the vampire novels. Justin Cronin. Thank you. Justin Cronin <laughs> was like still a professor there, but had basically moved on because of his vampire novels. And so they were like keeping him as their professor, but he wasn't actually teaching any classes for the entire four oh, years I was there. But they hadn't let go of him and hired someone new. Someone who could actually be teaching creative <laughs> Yeah. So they did have, they had one full-time creative writing professor and then they had the MFA, the UH MFA graduates rotating in as writers in residence. Oh, I didn't know that. Which was an amazing program. And I had so... That does sound amazing. Yeah. Like yeah. I had so much fun having those teachers. It was two different people because they did two years. Court Voorhees and Ian Schimmel, if you want to look mm-hmm. them up because they're both writers too. Uh, Ian Schimmel, we know. And oh, we okay, love yeah. him. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. He's a good friend. He was my thesis advisor. Really? Yeah. And so he was an MFA student cycling through? He had just finished. And then, like, that was a thing that you could do after, right after you finished, I think, was come to Rice okay. and be a writer in residence. Neat. And so now he's the undergraduate, what's his position? He's the undergraduate director. Yeah, something. Blah, blah. <laughs> We're going to. He was the he Ian, was the I'm so sorry. Jones, right? You're doing all the good things, is all I know. You're doing all of the good things. So anyway. I, I had really good teachers, be, partially because they were kind of like new in and coming in and yeah, just coming yeah. off their MFAs. They were able to really direct me. Court Voorhees writes YA, published like two or three YA novels. So that was great to have when I was a freshman coming in, yeah. to have someone who was like uh, not only affirming that I could write YA, but was literally publishing in YA. Like that and was hasn't awesome. been like totally chewed up and spit out by yeah. the system and hates everything at that point. Yeah. still like young. and um, So like not to at all discount fresh. Rice, but it wasn't, creative writing wasn't their main focus. I also decided that my like practical backup plan was teacher and teaching is also not their main focus. While I was in the teaching program, they sort of shifted it away to the the school of continuing education. And then I think that program got discontinued and you know, like it's, it's not the same anymore. If you want to get a teaching certification from Rice, you have to do a lot of different stuff and the program is not as strong. I think, I think as it was, although I'm sure they end up finding great people. But I was there for a master's degree, and it's called the Arts of Teaching, mm-hmm. an MAT, and um, we were in the basement of the math yeah. building. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. That's would... the one I did. Oh, with, okay. Because you could do an undergraduate just to get the certification while yes. the grad students were getting their yeah. master's. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I mean, I knew that I wanted to get published. Um, so then my parents had said, and then if you still want to do it, you can always go to New York for grad school. So I did. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I'll put that in my pocket. Yeah, yeah you told me I pipe. could. So I, yeah, as I was working with Ian on my thesis, you know, he kind of guided me of like what he thought I needed to do to get into MFA programs, which kind of hilariously was sometimes I think the wrong advice for me personally. But he was trying to get me into these programs that were like, he was like, listen, you got to write some serious literature. (laughs) So hilariously, I ended up getting into a writing for children program, which was absolutely the best fit for me. Like I was writing in my application, my cover letters. I don't really believe in literary fiction. And so, of course, I got rejected from everywhere <laughs> except for... And Ian was like, oh. It's so yep. brave. It's so brave. That's awesome. Uh, yeah. I love that. I love that. It's like, no, I'm going to say what I think, and then I'll land in the right place. I'm going to trust the universe. Yeah, I was already butting heads so much with my college professors, not... Um, not the two that I mentioned, uh, although, you know, Ian was trying to help me <laughs> gently uh, with the fact that like what I was writing was, you know, teenagers who accidentally ended up dating a robot or <laughs> zom- like a, a little kid, like a, not a kid, but a teenage girl who was 
part of a zombie apocalypse that happened because of a flash mob and they just got out of control and they decided they really were zombies. <laughs> I want to like, read that story. Uh, thank you. I read that <laughs> it's one of my favorites from also, my juvenilia. I think, like, three of my high school boyfriends probably are just robot men. <laughs> They're Zombies? from, like, a... No, robot <laughs> men. Like, someone said, this is how men act, and you guys go out and be this way. And then that's... And they did. And yeah. somehow I kept finding them. Dude, we could talk for the whole... I could talk <laughs> for all day. I feel like I didn't answer the question of career trajectory at all. Me too. But, we have um, to hear your magical publication story. Yeah. So once I was in grad school, at the New School in New York, the Writing for Children program, which is an amazing program to exist. Um, and they're getting... I think there are more of them, and yes. they're getting more popular because it's a little bit more of a healthy market. I think that's fair to say. Yeah. 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 Then it'll and happily them. so. Like, yeah. if... if you right. know, if it's the tonic for mm-hmm. all this other bad shit, then let's continue to fund yeah. children's literature um, programs. For so sure. I, that's where yeah. I met Danielle Clayton and Sona Cherapotra, who were the founders of Cake Literary, mm-hmm. which is a packaging company, which is a whole other discussion about. So packaging companies are groups that are basically, they know the writing industry, they know the publishing industry, or they know the market, they know the writing market, they know the publishing industry, and... They want to, they, they know which books they want to see on the shelves, but they don't necessarily want to write them themselves. Maybe just because they have too many great ideas, or maybe because they don't feel they're the right person. And so for whatever reason, they form a little company and they start going out and hiring writers to write these ideas that they want to see. And there's some that do it differently, and there's some that are bigger, and there's some that are maybe like internal with the publishers, and there's some that are like more secretive, but cake literary. <laughs> There's a lot of different IP is a whole world. Yes. Um, yeah. Cake Literary was founded specifically, and it's fairly new, um, although now I guess it's more than five years old. So yay, cake. Yeah. It was founded to specifically find new or young or upcoming, whatever, diverse writers and match them with projects that are fun, high concept, often fantasy, though not always, but like the kinds of things that kids want to pick up and read for fun, not for like eating your vegetables, and but ha- but have them have diverse characters. So Danielle and Sona, they started with their their co-written novel Tiny Pretty Things, which is about like ballerinas and drama, and it's like kind of Pretty Little Liars ish. Uh-huh. I don't I haven't seen Pretty Little Liars. <laughs> I tried to be cool and reference pop culture, uh, but it's basically like backstabbing boarding school drama in a ballet in an elite ballet school, uh-huh. and. But with, you know, protagonists who are, like, Korean and a black ballerina, and that's not an ethnicity, but she is a black ballerina, just like... So they started with that, and then they found other people to write other projects, so they're behind The Gauntlet, which is the, like, Jumanji-ish, getting sucked into a board game and looking after your younger sibling, with a Bengali protagonist who wears a hijab. Oh, wow. And, and do they sugar magic. sort of act as your agents as well? Do they, are there so they have an agent that works with them on all their cake projects. So oh, it's wow. kind of like part of the whole package is an agent. Super cool. Yeah, and they put together like these nice, to pitch, to go on submission, they put together these lovely packets and they like, you know, all these tricks of the trade that I've yeah. kind of gotten to see now because I've seen how they do it for their books. But also just knowing people, they know who to talk to and they know right. like what kind of things you need. And then they have they give you an extra marketing push besides whatever your publisher can provide and awesome. boosting and supporting. So, yeah, it's it's very cool. And I was very lucky to kind of basically just meet them at a mixer that was happening at my school because they were alumni of the program. Um, I was very lucky that they oh. mentioned to one of my friends, not even to me because I was like off in the corner eating cheese. Uh, <laughs> they mentioned to one of my friends that... <laughs> oh yeah we're kind of like on the lookout we have this project idea we're kind of on the lookout for a mexican-american or or texan writer and my friend was like hey you should meet anna (laughs) she's over there eating cheese (laughs) she's over there eating cheese i think they i think they literally came and dragged me over and were like talk to these people so thanks for that amanda and kiki that's amazing this is a great story i love it and yeah and so then we sat down and kind of like i was saying earlier once they started telling me what the idea that they had i was very much feeling like wow this is this is what I've always wanted to write yeah um but in a way it was someone giving me permission to write it it yeah. was someone giving me incentive to write it like right. and a deadline to write it which Support. is pretty invaluable yeah 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 yes it's hard to finish things when you're not on deadline and then suddenly someone gives you a deadline and you're like oh I can write now nice. uh, yeah so I mean oh, that yeah, was and I just I'm so grateful for that whole experience because 
I mean, now I have an agent for my project that I started at the same time as Love Sugar Magic and took much, much, much longer to complete. And I made, I just, I'm so lucky that I got to do this as well, that I got to have Love Sugar Magic coming out and I got to, and it's, it's middle grade, it's fun, it's adorable, my family likes to read it. It's super fun. It's, yeah, yeah. I had so much fun. It is. It's just it's like it's literally just delicious. so sweet and so wonderful yeah and like a celebration that's what I always I always say that like I say it's a celebration a lot yeah but it is a celebration it's yeah. a celebration of a lot of things that are not necessarily being celebrated yeah all over the mm-hmm. country the portion of the show where we're gonna do potpourri so these are just random book related questions are you up for that yeah definitely okay what's the book you love to recommend to those particular kids who may feel like a little bit of an outsider the first rule of punk by celia c perez yeah we've had that mentioned yeah jennifer matu on the show oh yeah yeah because that's all about this girl who is, you know, goes to a new school trying to be her little punk self and the administration is not really having it and she has to decide whether she's going to listen to them. Be or, herself. Yeah, do her own talent show. I read that. It's, it's really nice. And then also The Inquisitor's Tale by Adam Gidwitz is one that I really, really love. It's super historical fantasy. So it's set in like 13th century France or something. Which but you don't, with vampires. Which you don't think would be fun, but then he's he's just such a funny writer and person that he's like focusing on the fact that the kids drank beer and the dogs pooped on the fireplace like it's it's just hilarious <laughs> but, <laughs> but it's about three three magical children who one of them is biracial kid from because of a conquest that happened in like africa and then he his dad brought him back and just left him in a monastery and he has super strength that comes from his kind of like saint he's like He's like based on a saint figure who had super strength. There's a girl who's basically Joan of Arc, and there's a Jewish boy who can heal people by saying the Shema, which is like a healing prayer. It might not be a healing prayer. Uh, <laughs> it's that a prayer. So good. That's awesome. And he he puts these three kids together and just kind of sends them off on this like hilarious journey. But a lot of the a lot of the plot is really kind of dark because it's m- medieval France. They are trying to burn the torah but mostly the talmud because the torah is actually the bible so yeah yeah. and but they end up not knowing the difference and just burning it all and so like there's a lot of persecution (laughs) when in doubt yeah just burn the whole thing down burn your own burn 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 your own bible basically yeah yeah um so yeah if that's not a metaphor i mean that was (laughs) jeez for Ken Webster. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking exact same. All right. When, when you don't know the difference between the I Talmud mean, and the Torah, right. just burn it all. Just burn it all. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and so all the characters even though you're burning parts of your own Bible. Yeah. Kind of like dissing the new poet laureate whose father was the first uh, right, uh, Latinx firefighter. Perfect. I just thought of Hurricane Child, which is one of my favorite books. It's by Corinne Callender, and it's, uh, I'm picking middle grade because I write middle grade. Yeah, Uh, that's great. But it's about a a character who grows up, and this was another book where I was like, ooh, like a culture that I haven't experienced. It's uh, about a little girl growing up in the U.S. Virgin Islands. Her mother has disappeared. She feels out of place for a lot of reasons, gets bullied for a lot of reasons, and then she kind of like finds her way. There's a little bit of a ghost story in there, but it's very side- very sidelined to the kind of like actually feeling like an outsider by because of the real human things that are happening yeah mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. Okay. those are solid Neat. recommendations what's a book that gave you you feel like gave you permission to write stories the way you want so the first rule of oh, no i'm just kidding oh, <laughs> i know of. you've used up all your recommendations no, no but kind of because that book i i have a whole essay somewhere on some blog about it where oh, nice. reading that book kind of like took away a lot of my anxiety will you send that to us probably (laughs) yes i will took away a lot of my anxiety about being the only voice or like having to be like the authoritative voice on mexican-american culture because i was able to read it and be like Mm -hmm. i love this book and also it doesn't reflect my experience even though this character is even more me than leo because she's half 
whatever bicultural uh-huh. you know mm. and trying to navigate that but I'm just not a punk at the end of the day like, <laughs> right there's a lot of things I love about it but I'm not a <laughs> punk and she is so like that that book really coming out right before mine the way it did I had been so worried thinking like oh my gosh people are going to read my book and think that I'm not telling it right that I'm not really reflecting their experiences and they're going to see that I'm really a fraud and I'm not Mexican enough and all these things, you know, these like Holy anxiety yeah, thoughts. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Or yeah. worse, that somebody's going to read it and it's going to hurt them because I'm representing it wrong and they're going to be like, wow, this person totally doesn't get my culture and it's hurting me. But I think reading the first rule of punk, which I know I already recommended, but I, it really made me realize like, okay, look, we're not a monolith. I know I say it, but like this, that was the book that made me feel it. Yeah. Very We're good. not a monolith, and it's yeah. okay. It's okay to tell one person's story or one family's story. So yeah. right, and, and that is actually the way to 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 tell a universal story, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that is the first, that is the number one rule of, of fiction. That yeah. the more specific you tell it, the more universal it is. But that doesn't mean to then take that specific and apply it to an entire culture. Yeah. So oh, but also yeah. the school story by Andrew Clements is about being coming a writer, and that book is the book that made me realize that writing was a thing you could do. So that also gave me permission to pursue publishing. Say it again by... That's important. The School Story school by Andrew story. Clements. Because it's it's literally about a kid who publishes a book. At the time, I was like, what? You can do that? Oh my gosh. Wait. I thought books just magically appeared. Now I would like to do this. So that's how I like... That's why I wrote a novel in middle school. And that's why my best friend and I got like a book about getting an agent in eighth grade. Because we were like, gonna do that. Uh, I love it. Okay, what's your celebration ritual for finishing a book? Candy and Netflix. Nice. What candy? Uh, Junior Mints. Junior Mints. But then also, because of these books specifically, I've veered more towards baked goods. I really, really like, well, El Bolio is obviously big, but there's a panaderia right across the street from my apartment. Really famous, and I'm blanking on the name of it. I just have (laughs) trouble today. But there's lots of really great bakeries all around Houston. Mm -hmm. Um, also 85C is my new, 85 degree C is yeah. my new, like, there's one right by this house that I tutor and it's so dangerous because we I'm just enjoy like every single from day, 85C all the time, every single, every single time I'm like, okay, I need the sea salt jasmine tea and like five other things. <laughs> oh. a-, a tart. Yeah. <laughs> 14 egg tarts, please. Yeah. So like I've been finding a lot of great bakeries, but so Got any it. kind of sugar and lots of Netflix. Cause I think. Obviously, reading is very important if you're going to be a writer, but just in general, consuming stories is super important. Absolutely. And Netflix is such a nice way to, like, I'm relaxing, but I'm still filling up the well of, like, story. Yeah. And consuming story, so. Oh, that's what I'm going to tell myself the next time I watch Netflix. I'm filling up the well of story. I'm not just. (laughs) Yeah. Right. It's not just. It's. Yeah. It may not have the exact same effect as reading, but it'll teach you dialogue and it'll teach you story Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. it's still there it's still research well anna mariano thank you so much for being on this show it was such a pleasure thank you all so much for having me it was really fun talking sorry i like talked a lot no (laughs) that's right it's perfect you're not gonna let me ask my great british baking show question oh god ask your bait i'm sorry i'm sorry ask your baking show question it was like such a good segue no it's fine but i (laughs) was what is it i was giggling i was giggling about you mentioning great british the Great British Bake Off, because that is the only show that my seven-year-old and I can watch with equal amounts of pleasure. And <laughs> Daniel Tiger doesn't do it for you anymore? <laughs> it doesn't. It doesn't. But then it was so funny, because he doesn't know that like most reality cooking shows are like people trying to totally sabotage each other and talk trash about each other and all of that. So we went, we were visiting cousins in New York and we watched one of those and he was, mommy, what? You know, <laughs> like top shelf or something. These people are Too not sweet. Too yeah, pure. totally. These people are not British. Yeah. <laughs> but I was like, oh my gosh, watching that show is like reading YA because there's all this delight. There's actual <laughs> real substance. There's some like slightly sly wisdom you know, actual information, but there's no hateful drama, which is not actually true of YA. There's there's actually some hateful drama and, and for a reason, but less so maybe than in, in other kinds of genres. <laughs> Interesting. I mean, I feel like most of the YA writers I know would be pretty, <laughs> pretty happy with that, like, comparison. Uh, sure, yeah. <laughs> but I, I don't know. I don't want to speak for everyone. 
It might be more middle grade than YA, actually. Maybe, because I found, I found like, post-2016 election, I've gravitated more towards reading middle grade because mm-hmm. it's... For obvious yeah, reasons. Yeah, because, because it, it's yes. even, even more freeing from, like, the real dark, grimdark realities of the world. No, just, yes, I agree. I love the Great British Bake Off. <laughs> Which I started watching for research, actually, because I don't bake at all. And so oh, that would be a good way, yeah. It was it was really good research. Like, I think the second and the third books have better baking references purely, not because I learned to bake at all, but purely because I started watching The Great British Bake Off. <laughs> I, love it. I love that. You're right. All right, well, thank you. Oh, thank you. Effing Shakespeare is a production of Bloomsday Literary in association with Houston Creative Space, hosted by Kate Martin-Williams and Jessica Cole, and produced by me, Fu Lu. Our interns are Jennifer Overfield-Renya and Lily Wolfmeyer. Production assistance by Lily Wolfmeyer. There's lots of Twitter trash, but one of my favorite things about Twitter is that's like, your stripper name is this plus this. The last one I yes. heard was your Kentucky Derby horse name is the <laughs> symptom from your um, most recent mental illness plus what you last ate. So mine was like extended paranoia macaroni and cheese. <laughs>